0: Are you ready for some nosy bitches?
1: Because this is about to get explicit. Hey bitches.
0: Hey friends. Hey Carla. Michael. How are
1: you doing?
0: I'm great. <laughs> <laughs> that did not seem very convincing. I think I think it sounded I'm I'm great. It's <laughs> fine.
1: I think I think the problem is that you have water in your cup and I don't. The
0: the problem is I stop pronunciating when I start drinking the smallest amount. So I have to start drinking water at Uh, least until we're done. Because uh, if not, then it sounds like...
1: (laughs) If you ever hear an overexcited version of Michael that's really getting into it, that's probably because (laughs) I've had a couple of glasses of wine while Carla is telling her stories. And so tonight we are limiting it to, I have not quite finished my margarita. We're yes. Gonna, we're going to keep it above board. It, it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. Wait, this is how we get better versions of
0: ourselves. I swear. You need margaritas and I need water. The little bit you told me about this story, I do regret my decision in not having wine.
1: Why we dive into these ones that are like family tragedies and where there are children that have awful things happen to them, I'm not sure. We are clearly masochistic. It's a thing.
0: Yeah. I think somebody went down a checklist of what are the things about crime that Carla hates, like children,
1: serial killer. I have to first acknowledge that we're recording this on February 1st. So we're out of hopefully winter in Florida. And I Mm -hmm. need that to be true because this was a cold ass winter in Florida. Rest of you, contiguous 48 I, you don't even understand we're not used to this we're subtropical it's a thing so
0: I will already. say that like my hair frizzed up today it felt normal <laughs> Florida hair I regretted not having a hair tie in my yes in my hand at all times to to put back my lion's mane but yes I would love for some sunshine my skin needs sunshine my soul needs a little sunshine to deal with all the darkness in the world I really
1: <laughs> I am appreciating the longer days that's good stuff And to bring some rain clouds to your sunshine, we're going to bring you a pretty heavy story today, but very, very grateful for this having been brought to us by a loyal listener to this. So thank you, Laura H., for sending us this story. I've got lots of things that I will cite as far as references for this, but most of the information that you're going to hear from today is Michael's telling of a book by Ron Franskell? Yeah. Sure. F-R-A-N-S-C-H. ELL, who wrote a book called Shadow Man. And it is about a pretty epic story that happened in Montana back in the 1970s. So I'd love to go down that today. And of the many interesting things that will lay out in the story, maybe most notable is that this particular case is largely considered to be the birth of formalized FBI criminal profiling, and that being used in some sort of concerted and intentional manner going forward. And of course, that's meant that Lots and lots of crimes have been brought to justice that otherwise wouldn't have been by being able to put together a vision of what this killer or perpetrator could look like.
0: I've said it before. One of my favorite podcasts is Real Crime Profile. And it's because they have two behavioral analysts. So yes. one was actually one of the writers for Later Criminal Minds. I loved that series. But there was a world where I was like, How fascinating is it to be able to like base that? I also think, you know, linguists and just people who can read stuff like that. There was a show, I think it was called Lie to Me, where the guy would pick up – it's the same type of mentality. He would pick on things that you would do and he could tell like, you're lying. And that to me – like that's my favorite part of true crime is to understand based on somebody's behavior – there are definitely circumstances where I'm like, this person is not telling the truth or that doesn't feel right. Like that doesn't make sense. I think Scott Peterson is a person I like to come back to when, when he said certain things that he said, it's like, and they'll tell you like behavioral analysts will say like, that is him telling his truth. That's like, right. These are most Casey Anthony, like 100 on those recordings where, she, you know, the 911 tapes, like these are the most real moments. So all of that about FBI and learning about how they profile people, that is just fascinating. So ever since you told me about this book, I'm like, now also, I think I might skip the book because I like my sleep at night. And there's a lot of things in
1: this book that checklists (laughs) Carla's worst fears. The book was a heavy read. So for anyone that's interested in this, like just understand it's not a crazy, crazy thick read. It was only like 275 pages. You'll get through it pretty quickly. And Some of the things that are almost just said flippantly are about deep, deep trauma and tragedy, right? So if you're not into that and you would much rather hear Carla and Michael's very entertaining version of it, I'm sure that's what all of you are saying in the comments when you write reviews, which is your shameless plug to please go rate and review us on all of your podcast platforms.
0: Yeah. If you're listening and you love us, go on (laughs) Apple and you can leave some comments about like... Carla's the best. I mean, Michael's pretty awesome, too. Um, Also, Spotify. my secondary there. there. Hold on. Isn't this about me? (laughs) No. Michael is most likely everyone's favorite um, storyteller. But also, so Spotify does five stars. Now, that being said, if you're going to give us less than a five-star rating, like, just message us. You do not have to leave it on Apple <laughs> or say that. Or Spotify. <laughs> just let me just let us know what we can do so that we could get you there to five stars. So I'll
1: throw that out there. Also, you can find us on our socials on both Facebook and Instagram at Nosey bees. That's N-O-S-E-Y-B-S. And if you want to email us, if you're kind of old school like that, we do have a Gmail account. You can email us at nosybeesforlife at gmail.com. That's N-O-S-E-Y-B-E-E-S, the number four, L-I-F-E at gmail.com. We would love to hear these things, and we will give you a shout out on this lovely program, just like we did Laura H. for today's story. Are you ready to dive in, Carla? Let's go. The first thing that we need to know about the story is that it takes place back in 1973, that was before both of us were born, Carlo. Those of you that you maybe aren't familiar with this era, weren't alive during this era, like both of us, 1973 was the end of the Vietnam War, and when we entered into the Paris Peace Accords, it was also when the original Roe v. Wade decision was being made. There was lots of moving and shaking that was happening in this country at this time. There was some social and political upheaval, which I think plays into a bit of the setting of today's story. So this takes place in Manhattan, Montana. And all of you heard Manhattan and you're automatically thinking New York. This is the complete antithesis of that. This is Montana. It is a tiny, tiny town. This is near another town called Three Forks, Montana. People lived here so that they could be very, very outdoorsy. This is the kind of place that you live if you are into hiking, if you are into rafting, canoeing, you are just really enjoying being outside. And in fact, in the book, Ron describes it as a place that people would purposefully move to, to escape some of the burgeoning liberalism that was happening in cities across the nation. They really wanted a place that you could kind of be in this don't tread on me attitude and could just be at one with nature, which... You know, regardless of whether or not I agree with the politics of that, I love the sentiment of that. And truly everything about Manhattan, Montana seems very idyllic. It's at the intersection of two major rivers, the Missouri River and the Jackson River. It's home to Headwaters State Park. You can just imagine very green, very idyllic, which Montana, some of it can be very desert like. This was a bit of an oasis in the midst of all of that because of the convergence of these two rivers. This was also near one of our main character's parents. Marietta Jager is going to be a recurring theme in today's story. And her parents lived near this place. Marietta was there with the rest of her family camping, visiting her parents. This included her husband, Bill, their daughter, Susie, who was seven, their daughter, Heidi, who was 12, their son, Frank, 14, son Joe, nine, and son Danny, 16. So a pretty wide gamut. And they really enjoyed and had enjoyed for years coming to this state park, coming to this idyllic outdoor setting to go camping as a family. Just spend some outdoors time playing together and really enjoying being together in this setting. This was something that they brought in order to accommodate a larger family. They had to bring several different units in order to go camping. Typically how this worked is that Bill and Marietta would stay in the family's RV, very close next to it, Danny being a little bit older, he's 16, he would stay in the family's van, and the four younger children would all stay together in a tent. I know this might sound weird to some of you parents. Like I think when I originally told Mm -hmm. you this, Carla, you had a specific reaction. The only thing I will say about this is everything that I've learned from the setting that was described both in his book and in multiple articles, which we'll link in the show notes here, is that everyone was literally yards from each other. Right. No one's very far off. Also, no one besides Danny, who's basically a grown-ass man at this point at 16, everyone has someone else in there with them. The kids were all in there together, which included their son, Frank, which I'll remind everyone is 14, and their daughter, Heidi, who is 12. So I think in their minds, this was a very small town area. You're in a state park. They'd been camping here for years. Everyone's got their buddy system going on. Right. Everything should be good to go.
0: So we go camping And especially a few years ago, we'd go camping every summer with a couple of different families. Also, for the record, like, you've absolutely ruined that. But You're welcome. And even though my initial reaction was like, oh, my gosh, some of the the smaller kids to be in a tent while the parents are in an RV. But I was thinking that, like, my kids would be generally – like, I also was in a tent, um, which is very hard to believe. And then –
1: You camped in a tent?
0: It's really a miracle. Like
1: sleeping bag, air mattress. What was
0: your situation? It was an air mattress. Okay, it's a little better. And a like super powered fan in there because it's hot (laughs) In in July in the South. I was miserable. I would be awake every single night. Also because I was waiting for a murderer to come into my tent and kill me. So I didn't sleep very well. But I was just thinking about where were our kids at that time because they obviously were not in my tent because there was barely enough air for me to breathe. The kids were in separate tents. And actually where the kids were was not even very close to us because we were kind of all spread out over this campground. So I take back my initial judgment about like, ooh, those are some some young kids to be separated from their parents. But now I can see in a world, especially when you have a 12 or 14-year-old, Also, like if this is something you're doing very frequently, it does create that bubble of this is fine. Like we've been doing this for a while. This is our safe space.
1: You read my mind there. My family went camping a lot too. And specifically me and my biological father and his parents, my grandparents on that side. And same setup. We were in multiple tents and it was usually we had to rent a larger campground. When you're dealing with six to eight people, Unless you've just got like some sort of Harry Potter magical like spell induced tent, you gonna have have to have multiple. There were oftentimes because of the layout of the the camping ground that we would rent, it might be hills, all of that. I might be a bit away from the adults there, but there was this safe space. There was also the safe space with the other campers that you were around because you you feel like you're all there for this common experience. You're trying to really dig into nature. Hopefully, a lot of your worries are kind of put to the side, and I can very much imagine that is what the Jager family was experiencing when they went on this trip in the summer of 1973. I'm hoping that their days leading up to this event were filled with things like volleyball, playing in the rivers, enjoying life together as a family. Unfortunately, because y'all, we run a true crime podcast, things would very quickly take a dark turn. Sometime in the middle of the night on June 25th in 1973, Heidi, which I'll remind everyone, is Susie's older sister, aged 12, woke up in the middle of the night to feel the sensation of a breeze coming through a tent. Now, any of you that haven't gone camping before, especially if you have multiple people in the the tent, that is not the sensation you wake up to. You wake up feeling as though you are in some sort of biosphere. It is a lot of people breathing out carbon dioxide into an enclosed section unless you have a fan to your effect. I mean, the, the air is stale. It is hot. You can tell very readily if something about that has changed, if there is air that is leaking in from the outside. Heidi, having been on several years of these kinds of camping trips, thought that too and just assumed that someone might have, must have gone outside, maybe go to the bathroom and then roll yeah. the night oh, they must yeah. have unzipped the zipper. That would be my assumption mm-hmm. too but looked over at the zipper only to realize that it was closed. Now she's still in a little bit of this, I am not quite awake stupor. So she starts looking around and everything looks pretty normal until she looks to the back of the tent and realizes that there is a very straight, almost surgical cut down the back of the tent. I'm going to need you to turn every light on this house on. Even more terrifying is that she looks over to the sleeping bag next to her and her sister Susie aged seven, is nowhere to be found. Any sense of slumber, of safety, of security that they had in that campground was instantly broken. Heidi starts freaking out, wakes up her brothers that are in the tent with her. They eventually alert the rest of the family. And what I can only imagine was a crazed search in the middle of the night ensues. All of them hoping at this time that Susie just wandered wandered off. She maybe had to go to the bathroom Got turned around, who knows, but can't get out of their head the fact that there is a surgical cut at the back of the tent.
0: Because at that point, you're not thinking it's an animal. Of course not. Like, a bear didn't come with its, like, nail,
1: you know, (laughs) like,
0: very nicely. This isn't
1: Catwoman in, like, Batman. Susie, (laughs) come
0: come with me. You know, (laughs) let's go, you know, frolic with the other little baby bears.
1: Susie was definitely gone. This escalates very quickly. The parents, once they understand that their daughter is gone after doing some preliminary searches and also waking the rest of the campers around them to really try to get a community effort, no one is finding her. So even this idea of if Susie got up and left the tent of her own volition, how far could she have realistically gotten? She's seven years old. She couldn't have gotten far. Surely, if we now have multiple families of people, including adults that are looking for her, we would have found her they did the right thing immediately. They contacted local authorities who started setting up in the coming days, search parties that involved people from all over the community. Now in the book, Ron describes that some of those are like would be cops, like you don't always get the top shelf people when you're calling for this kind of investigation, but it didn't matter. They were just happy to have people that were willing to come and help them search for their daughter and hopefully bring her home safely. When that didn't work in the coming days, the state police got involved. And eventually, this reached a national level. We now have a little girl that has been missing for days. And it only made sense that we start getting the FBI involved. Even if this is something where Susie, and we're hoping at this point that this is the outcome, could be brought home safely, it is clear that on some level, some foul play is involved. And I cannot even imagine. I'm interested in your thoughts What would even be your reaction in this case?
0: Like anytime we hear about any of these crimes against like children, I can't even fathom that in like my mind. And I imagine none of us can unless we have been in that spot. That's right. I just can't imagine the horror that they have to. And then you have other kids too. So like at some level, you can't fully just break down because you do have to like still figure out you have to figure out how you get up and find your purpose and decide to go searching and doing those things and being involved in it i can't imagine what type of strength what that must feel like for them
1: you're supposed to as some sort of authority figure over these kiddos lives and i'm not a parent myself but i do have nildren, nieces and nephews yeah my my nildren are very important to me um they the kids of my friends are very important to me, even if I don't know them as closely. The idea of losing your daughter. Yeah. I, like, again, if this were your daughter, I would be losing my mind and doing everything that I could to try to bring her home safely. That's exactly what's happening here. And again, this is a concerted effort. This escalated from local, county, state, and eventually the FBI getting involved in this. Fortunately, this continues for the next several days. Mm-hmm. Days turn into weeks. Weeks would turn into months with absolutely no sign of anything having to do with Susie. And in the midst of what I I can't even wrap my head around, the kind of turmoil and tragedy that this family is experiencing, just like you said, like they've got other kids, they have lives that they have to resume. They have kids that they're trying to get to graduate high school. So in the book, Ron describes, and this is based on a lot of uh, interviews with Marietta later in life, they tried to settle into some sort of uneasy, normal cadence, like normal. I'm putting giant efforts that listeners can't hear. How the fuck do you return to some sense of normal after that? You don't really, but you make it work. It talked about how The kids really just didn't bring this up. They didn't broach it with their parents. They knew this was a sensitive subject. And likewise, Bill and Marietta really didn't bring this up to the rest of the kids. The only way that they could preserve any sense of normalcy for the rest of the kids was not to forget this happened, but it almost felt like there was this intentional compartmentalization. I need to put this over here to the right. So that I can focus on the stuff that's over here to my
0: left. I mean, you think about physical ailments. If I stubbed my toe, what am I going to do? I'm going to start leaning on my other foot. That's right. You know, Gosh, I'm going. Such a good example. Yeah, I'm going to start moving. In say, say like, I'm not going to touch this. You have to do that when your heart is broken or there is something traumatic because you need time and space away from that moment so that you can figure out like how you're going to deal with it. I can't even imagine what that looks like to piece my life back together in order to like settle into this new normal.
1: We don't have a lot of detailed records of what happened in the months that immediately followed. We can insinuate based on everything that we just talked about, trying to put ourselves in their position. And some of this is backed up by what Marietta and the rest of the family have shared with us. But we do know that they settled into something resembling normal again exactly a year to the day we're now talking June 25th of 1974 marietta gets a call at her home residence from a man who says i have your daughter i'm the one that took her she's alive and well marietta is no idiot and she's been working very closely with police at this point and Like we insinuated at the beginning of this episode, things like criminal profiling, they aren't a real thing. Those are still being firmed up here, but we still have investigators on the case. And from everything that I can tell here, we talk a lot about bad police work. It feels like they did a lot of things right.
0: I was going to say something about that earlier. So like the problem with this case, because you're talking about the 70s, and I've been listening to a lot of cases from the 80s. have binged the podcast Cold, which talks about some crimes that happened in the 80s, and then also the killing fields. And they just didn't have the type of DNA and things that we have today. Also, like, there's a camera on almost everybody's door.
1: At every stoplight yeah. and at every convenience store. Phone
0: records are That's getting right. people all the time. and Cell so phone cameras. Yeah. If you are not a hardened criminal and don't have your own DNA in, the, in a database somewhere... Now there are like genealogy sites out there where people are volunteering their DNA or catching you. So it is like, it's just not the world that we live in today in the seventies. Think about this crime scene. They're at an RV park, which probably while it does have fam- families, probably also has transients.
1: 100%. And
0: even those families, probably a lot of them are on vacation. And so you don't probably have a lot of people who are paying attention to the level of detail, and they're not noticing that something is different, right? Because it's not the same people. At my house, if all of a sudden a strange car pulled up to my neighbor's house, I would immediately be like, that's a weird car. I've never seen that
1: vehicle before. What's going on?
0: If I'm at a brand new house or I'm visiting somewhere, I would have no idea to know that. The other thing is where there's no body, so there's no physical evidence there, no one saw him in fact no one even knows exactly what time and i say him but like no one even knows what time she was taken at it would have been somewhere between they fell asleep and when she woke up but it could have been 10 minutes after she fell asleep or could have been 10 minutes before she woke up so here's this time that they could get into a car Or they went into the, you know, I mean, I say mountains, but I don't know where. I'm not very good at geography. So like wherever (laughs) they went. Yeah, into the wilderness (laughs) that they went. But that doesn't leave, there's what physical evidence. It's not snowing. So there's no footprints in the snow. But even like footprints in the snow, what is that going to tell you? It's Montana. The man probably is wearing a boot that 80 other men are wearing as well. You did have a little bit of science, but you mainly had like fingerprints and
1: things like that so it so was really obvious stuff like you had a blood sample right? yeah because they could do blood typing at least then so you could narrow it down even though we didn't have dna right you could narrow it down to a subsect of the population based on whatever blood type you found there. even that is that, oh, some that of that is, is, is scary kind of yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway
0: people were getting convicted on all sorts of
1: like it was just like he's a male with type a blood uh yeah him and two million when
0: we talk about like policing <laughs> back then this is a lot of gut yes i think you're guilty you're probably guilty the idea that then somebody a year later, when the trail is obviously cold, the fact that you would call a year later, you really are brazen. And honestly, who does that? You were, you were scot-free. You were, you were done.
1: So much of this though, the cases that we've done and so many that we have yet to do there is an ego to these criminals. Yes. Maybe we'll do a special on this someday. Like there there are the smart criminals that are out there to prove how smart they are. And then there are the really dumb ones that still think that they're really, really smart mm-hmm. and think that they can, out- they can outwit you. And beyond that, like truly enjoy the chase. And I think that's a little bit of what we would find in our criminal here. He was toying with Marietta to a certain extent. He's telling them, and we had no evidence of this at the point at which he called. He's telling Marietta and her family through her, your daughter is absolutely alive. Marietta's no dummy, though. She's been through this for about a year now. They've been through hell, high water, and they have searched through again. I think there was decent policing done here. Mm -hmm. They ran down every possible lead they could. Anyone that even so much as stared at a child sideways, anywhere near Three Forks or Manhattan, Montana, which is where our story is centered, they were looking them up and down. I mean, people that had just been like verbally abusive to children like on the street before, they're checking in them, into them. Every single one of these leads came up dry. But through those, just like there is with any major crime here, and especially I, I didn't get a sense of what size of reward they were doing, but there was going to be some sort of reward if you had a lead that led to them finding their daughter. I think a lot of people want to try to be a hero, and that brings out the crazies to some extent. There had been plenty of false leads. Marietta and Bill and the rest of the family have been through the ringer. She wasn't stupid to this. And so even though she was very taken off guard by all of that was going down, She would recount later in interviews that she managed to get, you know, her mind recollected and say things like, prove it. Like, how do I know that you actually have my daughter? The perpetrator or the would-be perpetrator at this point, we don't know for sure that this is the person, does describe some things that really put Marietta's mind on edge, specifically was able to describe this kind of hooked club fingernail that Susie had and had for her entire life. It really shook her. But she did have some doubts here. This case has been out into the ether, out into the public for about a year now. This felt like a detail that might have been leaked at some point. Maybe a picture or something like that, yeah. Exactly. Or even just some detail on the radio, news, things. When you're trying to find someone, right, it is not unusual, even today in 2023, for us to throw out there some identifying markers for that person so that if Carla and Michael see them on the street, they'd have some way of identifying them beyond, beyond some really rudimentary descriptor like seven-year-old girl oh okay that could be a thousand right it could be anybody yeah but you describe something really really specific like that maybe you're actually describing the right person marietta though still doesn't bite that really shook her it's weird that he knows that specific detail but understands i want to know more She also had been talking with investigators, and even though a full profile, because remember this was kind of the advent of profiling, hadn't yet been written for this person, they did kind of predict that eventually this might be an outcome, that someday the perpetrator may try to contact you, and that they might try to lead this on. And in fact, someone like a Marietta, who we'll learn more about this later, was a very compassionate woman. If anyone was going to get through to whoever did this, and they had any chance of getting Susie back alive, it was Marietta. She was going to be the one that was going to be able to confront him. So Carla, she manages to keep him on the phone for an hour oh, wow. talking to him about all of this stuff. During this conversation, he again, he, he loves playing games, this guy. He tells her at one point, your daughter's alive, but she won't know who you are. And Marietta starts saying, well, why is that? Why wouldn't she you know who she is? Oh see, we've been sightseeing out West and I've been spending all of my time brainwashing her. She remembers none of her life before you. You don't even exist to her anymore. I just want to get your reaction again because I read this kind of line and this like, oh my god. Like, that's just but so I'm trying to imagine crazy. for like you as a mother, like if you're told that your daughter or your son, like wh- what what? Yeah. <laughs>
0: First of all, I'm going to find you.
1: I know. I'm, I'm you tapping down.
0: this phone now right now. I'm not going to do anything nice to you. Yes. But you know, I, I mean, I've heard of cases where people, they did do stuff like that, like where they did capture somebody. In your memory at six and seven years old, I think it would probably take maybe a good year. So like, maybe that's an accurate description, but it would take some time to convince a kid. But those memories can change and their minds are so young, it probably would would cause me some hesitation but i i definitely think that like marietta questioning him and being like give me more like give me more give me more and also probably just says to the level that she's trying to understand what's happening you know and get to her child get to the end result and i don't know we've talked about it before in an emergency situation i don't know that i'm your best person i don't know <laughs> If I'm gonna be the one that's going to save us, I might be like if we're in a boat, I might be the one that's taking us down. So that level of clear-headedness really is impressive and I don't know that I have it. I'd I like- think I just would move to fight like I my that fight or flight mode would be in survival I would hope that it would hit survival mode and that's why I think she's at. she's like, okay well, what about this? from everything that you've told me like she's just an incredible
1: woman, really. I'd like to think like my version of I'm going to hunt you down is that like I turn into deep problem solving mode. I want to find the holes in your story. We talk about this all the time on the farm. We had something recently where we had a deep freeze in Florida. That's why I'm ready for it to not be in winter where it got so cold that our well blew. Like I looked out there, we have a little fountain on our pond. It's very beautiful. It's very peaceful. I looked out there the next day and we had two fountains and (laughs) one of them wasn't on our (laughs) pond. One of them was coming from our well and it was not fun. And while Thomas is definitely one that was just like, oh my gosh, what do we do in this moment? Now, he is one of the greatest problem solvers that I've ever met. But in the moment, that is not his strength. Where my mind immediately went to, I don't even know how I did this. It was Batman style. Like, I was like, no, I remember this one thing that the well guy told us a year ago. All I have to do is flip the switch. Like, that's how my brain works. I think works. we described you the other day as <laughs> brain man. And like, that's probably an accurate description. Marriott is quick wit and cool head. Yeah. He's able to keep this under control. It ultimately doesn't yield anything except for a long conversation, but that does give investigators some stuff to go on. It also involves just a little more cruelty from this would-be criminal at this point, because he says, ultimately, I cannot turn your daughter over to you. And by the way, there's going to be a ransom. I need you to pay me $25,000. Now, when I initially heard that figure, I'm just like, Marietta. Like I'd be going to the bank right now. Like that might break me, but I'm gonna go to the bank right now. I'm gonna pull out twenty-five I'm gonna 000. call a friend. So in today's modern currency, that is approximately seven hundred and sixty thousand dollars. They were he was asking for three quarters of a million dollars. And there was no guarantee that he even had their daughter. That phone conversation ends, but it's not the last that we hear from this would-be perpetrator. A couple of days later, on July 2nd in 1973, so literally just a week later, the Galatan County Sheriff's deputy, specifically his name was Ron Brown, received a similar call. Galatan County is the county in which Three Forks and Manhattan, Montana are located, receives a similar phone call, and this time he's doubled it, $50,000 in ransom to try to get the daughter back, which again, if you're doing the math, $1.5 million in today's currency.
0: So not only are you calling her parents, uh-huh.
1: you are now so bold that you are calling the sheriff. Uh-huh. Wow. What size of balls must you have? Right. And what do you think that you have? This starts to get into what I think might be dumb criminal mode. You got too cocky. Mhm. You were, you and I talked about this earlier, you were scot free. Mhm. At this point you were a year in if you did something unsavory and we don't well, we know you've done something unsavory. We're still hoping that she's alive. You think that you're so smart that now you're going to contact the parents and then the fucking police? And get money from it. And get away with it. Okay. I'm telling you, the 70s and the 80s had people bold. Things started to unravel a little bit at this point. See, investigators got a call from a local there in Montana by the name of Ralph Green. And he says, hey, I got my phone bill this month, and there's this invoice on it for this crazy long call that I didn't make. Like, the call was at least an hour long. Investigators didn't think anything of it at the moment. But when they go to do the right thing and investigate his phone lines, they find some creepy ass shit. While getting into the phone cables, policemen found that there was what they call a voice gateway and other technological devices that were built into A break in the phone line so basically someone had intentionally installed something on his phone mechanism to make a phone call and to make it look like it is coming from ralph green's house
0: can i just point out that ralph green is probably a 70 year old man Mm -hmm. because only he would call only would he call then an investigator and be like excuse me i have this weird phone charge on my like phone bill i didn't do this Just such a random thing. Oh, this is very suspicious.
1: Some of this, though, I do think is sign of the times. Think about it. Your landline was the only way to communicate, especially in a place like Manhattan, Montana. We're not talking Manhattan, New York, where there are pay phones. There's no way of doing that. And also back then, I just even remember in the 90s, like any kind of, and I don't know if this was considered long distance, but like phone calls were not cheap. It was expensive. Yeah.
0: I could see my mom reviewing...
1: Excuse, especially if it's an hour charge. I'm going to know this. Excuse me, police
0: officer. I have, you know, someone stole my mom's check out of a mailbox. And I'm telling you right now that, like, my mom would have – she would have had him fried in the electric chair.
1: That's right. If she could have, so. So they get this call from Ralph Green, and that's obviously tipping them off some to some stuff. But also interesting is based on that long phone call that this perpetrator had with Marietta – And a subsequent call that would be made to the house again, because this guy is brazen. This time he talked to their oldest son, Danny. They had wiretapped the family's home at this point. Again, they had predicted that perhaps the perpetrator would eventually try to be in in contact with them. Through that wiretap, they were able to trace this call down to a substation in Cheyenne, Wyoming. That led them to a nearby ranch. Where they eventually found something like 1,200 bone fragments scattered across this ranch. This had been a long since abandoned ranch. Through some identification mechanisms, we mentioned they were a bit more limited than they are later, but they were able to hone in on some basics. Just like we were talking about from blood typing, you can kind of get an idea of like right. gender, age, uh, basic makeup, like ethnicity, that sort of thing. And they were able to discover from these bone fragments that they were of two individuals. One that was of a woman, probably between the ages of 18 and 25, and one that was a child's, likely a girl's, Mm. aged six to eight. Terrifying, but also not conclusive. They couldn't pin this specifically to Susie. So they've got a couple of things to go on there. Using this information, we had several profilers from the FBI. Authorities are really trying to to get things in gear here and i mentioned a couple times now this was the advent of profiling so based on this they started putting together some sort of profile of what an offender would look like by their estimation it was very likely that this suspect was a white male because you know montana in the 1970s of course it was some sort of white male that he likely was between the ages of 25 and 30 He would have had to have some sort of knowledge of the local area, not only to be able to tap the phone line of a local, but to also have some sort of working knowledge of the area from which he kidnapped Susie. You got to figure out how it's going on. Remember, this happened in the dead of night. This is a wilderness area at the convergence of two rivers in a state park that is hundreds, maybe thousands of acres in size. You have to be able to traverse that. So like some of this feels like really good investigation. Yeah, I
0: was going to say, I mean, it's it's definitely spot on. And so I'm guessing, so I know we said like, okay, so we tracked it down to Wyoming. So where they were in Montana, this- Very close. Very close. Okay, got it. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Again, geography, not my- uh, Me too. None of this area. Actually, our friend Laura H. has helped educate me on that.
0: Earlier <laughs> when you said Montana, all I heard was Yellowstone. That's right. Is like, <laughs> it Kevin Costner, like all the beautiful men? Yes.
1: So another good assumption that they made for this is they were trying to build a profile is that this clearly had to be someone that had a background in some sort of telecommunications. You're not putting those kind of devices Mm in the 70s. This is not something that you could go pick up from a radio shack and know. I don't know that I I could do
0: it today. There's no way.
1: And taps on cell phones look so different too. That's an entirely different mechanism. But just, I felt the same way. It was clear to them that was likely the case. They also figured out that this person is probably a known social outcast that has a difficult time taking part in day-to-day conversation. This is going to be one of those Aki's people that we all know and love in our lives. And some of that was based on the conversation with Marietta, but also just the way in which he was being kind of showy with what he was doing. It was almost looking for attention and affirmation. I think some good profiling on their part. In the course of this investigation, they now have some sort of profile. Police considered several suspects, and I'll go back to what I said a few minutes earlier, right? It's all of the the usual suspects in this, and so they're they're going down that list of people. Ultimately, they came up empty. But police did note that there was a specific man matching this description that had made frequent trips to and from Three Forks, Montana, in the time period between 1973 and 74. He was a construction worker. He had worked on installation of various ranches to include the ranch where they found some of these bone fragments. And they found a receipt for an auto repair shop in Cheyenne, stating that he had specifically been there on September 24th. And that was the day that one of the calls had been made to the Jagger family. And they were closing in.
0: This is police work.
1: Mm -hmm. This is how they did it, like piece by piece. This eventually led them to a gentleman named David Meyerhofer. He was arrested in August of 1974 and brought to the police station for interrogation. Now, remember that criminal profile that had been put together by the FBI at this point? I just want to say that it was completely spot on. A little bit about David Meyerhofer before we get into the rest of the story. He was born in 1949 in Bozeman, Montana, so not far from where our story takes place. He was one of five children, Shortly after his birth, his family did indeed move to the town of Manhattan, Montana, we know that he is brought up in this locality. He would spend the majority of his childhood, including up into his teenage years, here in Manhattan, Montana. He attended a local high school, did all the normal things, but he was known as someone that was a bit socially outcast. He had a really hard time making friends, and he was even known to be a little bit of a bully to his classmates. While none of that seems like weird on its face, like we all knew bullies in high school, just like as you're starting to compare it to a profile, it's like, okay, local, check. Right. Socially awkward, check. Like it's starting to check some boxes. After he graduated high school, he walked several odds and ends jobs. He was eventually drafted into the army where, guess what, Carla? He was in the Signal Corps in San Diego, California. Telecommunications background, check. Check. We're starting to hone in here. He had been part of the Vietnam War, which when we've talked about the profiles of lots of criminals, I think it's clear to me at least that often these are very broken people. And if the Vietnam War did not fucking break you, I don't know what does. Like To me, when I read this piece of information, I'm just like, ah, it's all starting to coalesce. This could be one of the reasons that this individual ended up so fucked up. He was, for whatever it's worth, heavily awarded. He won the National Defense Service Medal, the Vietnam Service Medal, and the Vietnam Campaign Medal. And eventually in 1971, he returned to the United States. He continued his military service at Camp Pendleton, and he was honorably discharged in 1973, which basically brings us up to current day to the city of Manhattan, Montana.
0: So what's interesting about the signal group. So I was in the army back in the early 2000s, and I was attached to a signal sometimes like group. And part of what the army does, at least in the 2000s, so part of their signal, we did tropo signal. So tropo signal is interesting because telephone poles can only go so far. So in order to communicate, you have to have a telephone pole set up. So tropo though can go a lot further. So when you're over. Curly, you're getting into some tactical yeah, so like shit right now. <laughs> when you're in like Iraq or Afghanistan, you want to be able to go, you know, hundreds of miles. 100%. I don't know. I don't know what type of signal at that point they did. But like, so my unit would climb up telephone poles and, you know, set that all up and things like that. So they all assigned us jobs. Now, I had no desire to climb up a telephone pole. But I was say like the <laughs> army, like there's a lot of that trained you. And I wasn't in Vietnam. War is a, a very hard time. And depending on what your mental state is, he was drafted. We at least know that. So this isn't something that he chose. But Vietnam was just a tough war. The army teaches you, part of their basic training that I got in 2000s, I'm sure he got in the 70s, is that they do hand-to-hand combat. They train you on stealth training. You're trained how to do different missions at night. And for him to be able to walk into an RV camp and snatch a little girl sight unseen, like his training taught them how to do that. It very falls in line, of course, most people don't use their powers for bad and use their powers for good, but this does make sense. And the profile is very fitting. And the fact that he, as soon as you said about like what he had on the telephone, you knew he had to have some type of knowledge
1: or intelligence level for that. Well, and to the access point, so when he got back to Manhattan, Montana. He became a carpenter and he worked on several local ranches, which is how he even got access to the ranch where they would eventually find all those bone fragments. So all of it added up. Eventually, authorities would confront David Meyerhofer with this information, and it's what eventually broke him down. So when they put all of this in front of him, the information from the wiretaps, remember they had recorded his voice. They're now bringing him in for some of these interrogations. They are able to match up his voice from the recorded interrogation to the recordings on the wiretap. So they've got a voice match. We have your criminal profile here. We know you had access to some of the specific areas that we found. The policing all lines up. It really does. And I'm not saying it's perfect policing. I found lots of conflicting articles about like, could they have found some of this sooner? Yes. Ultimately, I saw nothing that pointed to the fact that if they had done things differently, it would have led to finding Susie alive, for whatever that's worth. It feels like, overarchingly, good work was done here. These people were very motivated to try to bring this little girl home and home alive and well, which... You know, we we've been hard on police at times. Yeah, this is one where it felt like they did their job. It's just
0: a hard job, especially at that time frame, it's just and a you just hard just don't job. have some of the things to go. And I would say that honestly, like even in today's world, if you're talking about like a remote location, yeah, and this is happening, you don't have a lot of evidence to go on.
1: Meyer Hoffer does confess to two crimes. He admitted abducting, of course, Susie Jaker. He also had abducted a 19-year-old named Sandra Smolligan, I think is her, her name, Smelligan Smolligan, who had gone missing on February 10th of that same year from a basketball game in Manhattan. You'll remember that the other remains that were found at that ranch were the female remains of someone aged 18 to 25. Sandra was 19 years old. Meyerhofer admitted that he had actually tried to get to some sort of relationship with sandra that he was really attracted to her and when he pushed back he eventually abducted her to try to take her gagged her um, eventually did far far worse things and eventually suffocated her to death in regards specifically to susie we still don't know to this day it was the hardest part of this and i have looked at all the sources and marietta even concedes this as well we just don't know why I don't know, like from my mind, if I'm trying to look at it and we try to do this, look into the minds of some of these people, was it this realization that I couldn't control this older woman, so could I control a child? Absolutely. You know, was, was that what it was? I can make them bend to my will? But apparently that didn't work out well either. According to David's recounting of the situation, Susie fought back fiercely. He did eventually confess to molesting her. Eventually, when she still wouldn't calm down, he stabbed her to death. His motive, like I mentioned, was never determined. He said that his aim was never to rape her or to sexually assault her in any way. That's hard for me to believe with the admittance of... of talking about molesting her and also knowing that this had originally started with a full-grown woman that we know he had tried to get into some sort of sexual relationship with. That 100% was the motivation in taking her. Yep. They had suspected, but didn't know this for sure, that David was guilty of multiple crimes. They also, based on the two crimes that he had actually confessed to, he was facing a capital punishment outcome to this. Like, he was likely going to get the death penalty— And his defense attorney and he didn't want that to be the outcome. He didn't want to die, which I, I, Carl, I just don't understand. Like if I have been that kind of scourge of society and I have done this thing and there's no going back from having done it, give me the quick way out. I do not want to live the rest of my life in prison. I don't care how painful that lethal injection is or whatever you're going to give me. That's going to last momentarily. And then I don't have to go through the rest of that shit. Like, If I did some bad, pay your dues. Like, I, I don't know about you, but I'd be like capital punishment. His attorney did try to broker a plea deal. And as part of that plea deal, David Meyerhofer, and I'm sure there are very many more, unfortunately, did admit to two more murders. One of them was of a Bernard Pullman, who was 13 years old, who had died back in 1967 while swimming with a friend. He basically thought that it was some sort of accidental shooting that had ricocheted and unfortunately ended by hitting Pullman and he had died. The second of which is one that was more readily connected and actually helped them build the profile of David um, later in the case. And it was of a 12 year old boy named Michael Rainey, who was on a camping trip with some Boy Scout friends. And he was sharing a tent with one or more of his fellow Boy Scouts who woke up in the middle of the night to also feel the sensation of a draft coming through their tent. And his friend noticed that there was a hole cut in the tent. But unlike in Susie's case, Michael was still laying in his sleeping bag. When they investigated his body, they did find a small stab wound, but they didn't think much of it because again, Boy Scouts always ready. Almost all of them had pocket knives on them. By the way, again, good police due diligence. Everything that Ron described in the book says that they checked every single one of those knives to see if they matched the wound puncture on Michael's body. And they didn't, but they just assumed we must be missing something because the other thing on Michael's body was a contusion on the side of his head. Michael hadn't died from his stab wound. He had died from blunt force trauma. He had been beaten basically. And specifically the contusion that was found on his head, his head had been beaten so violently that a large section of his brain had died. So, while his scout mate did find him technically alive, he was a vegetable at that point. He was never going to come back, and he did eventually succumb to his injuries.
0: I just can't imagine like what type of trauma that must do to these kids that are surrounding like like what if I did something that hurt my friend? Because they thought like maybe it was- Roughhousing. Like it's Boy roughhousing or playing and-, and Which is a big logical
1: hurt. explanation. Yeah,
0: he went to sleep and he didn't wake up. And they probably thought for that whole 10 years, like they had done something to their friend that caused this to happen.
1: This has a happy ending for no one. So kind of wrapping up the case itself. And then I want to go a little bit into Marietta and the story that follows this because somehow she managed to turn something really, really ugly into something- noble and borderline heroic he makes this confession he knows that it's very very likely that he's going to be put up for some sort of capital punishment and so they find him four hours later in his cell dead by suicide having hung himself with a towel
0: did he leave it out i wonder
1: nothing that we can see here what we do know is that authorities in the jail hadn't been informed that this was some sort of potential like capital punishment murder cause so he wasn't on suicide watch no one or, was, was thinking that was going or did to be they a thing. like i mean maybe. but did they
0: miss something Was this like some epstein suicide here it, like
1: it's hard to tell right like we look back on it it's easy to be with skeptical eyes but what we know for sure from right. multiple sources is he confessed four to five hours later dead in his cell hung by a towel
0: and didn't want capital punishment, but yet committed suicide.
1: Well, wanted it on his own terms. And mm. doesn't that fit the profile of yeah. someone with that level of ego and thinking that they're they're going to outsmart you to the yep. very, very last turn. We still do not know the motivations because David did not leave a note. And because we didn't get to further interrogate him, we didn't get further interviews with him, anything like that. Interesting, though, that his younger brother, Alan, was also arrested. And this was in 1986 and it was for a string of child rapes near seattle washington allen was eventually convicted did not commit suicide in his cell thank god but unfortunately maybe for the rest of us he was released in 2017
0: i think if an obvious sign would be like something was not right in that house
1: we talk about that a lot right like if you Often, these kinds of things are born from having trauma in your childhood. You don't go after children and try to have power over them and control over them unless you were in a situation where you were put in this, under someone's thumb and under someone's foot and people had power and control over you. For whatever it's worth, we don't have any evidence that that is, in fact, the case. Right. We'll get into this in just a little bit, but some of the actions of his mother later in life don't seem to me, and I don't know much about his father, but it don't doesn't seem like to me a mother that was abusive or that let him be raised in an abusive household. But shifting the focus a little bit just to Marietta, and I think maybe this is just inference on my part. I think maybe she had a crisis of conscience, realizing that maybe they could have gotten more out of him if the death penalty wasn't on the table. And so she really turned to this viewpoint of trying to be an advocate for the death penalty being abolished. She considered herself a Roman Catholic woman. She said that she was much aligned with her faith and that she felt like it called her to forgiveness and not to put someone to death. She was quoted as saying, I was just ravaged with hatred and a desire for revenge. I was seething. She also said that she remembers feeling as though she could have killed the man who had taken Susie away quote, with my bare hands and a smile on my face, end quote, which I very much relate to. But she also stated, quote, I knew that hatred wasn't healthy, that it would obsess and consume me. Were I to give into that kind of mindset, it would be my undoing. It's not to say that it was an easy realization, but I felt absolutely justified. I had every right to feel how I did. I was called to forgive my enemies, not to kill them. So, I made the commitment to work toward an attitude of forgiveness. I promised to cooperate with God in whatever He needed to do to help move my heart from fury to forgiveness.
0: I mean, she is an incredible
1: woman <laughs> I because don't even know what to say. Today. And you know,
0: like, I mean, as much like that I joke and stuff like that, like i I do think that what she says is valid, that at some point, you can't. like i and I'm and we probably all know people like this or I've all seen situations where, like, There's something pivotal that happens, and they are bitter and angry and just miserable people. And the children who are left to deal with that, like, you know, and so – That fucks them up too. Yeah, you can't – there's nothing you can do. No. We said this when we were talking about any of these cases. There is nothing that is going to bring your loved one back. There is no amount of sadness, anger, anger this like him dying any of it nothing is going to change the situation so at some point you have to figure out a way to work through that trauma and start this new normal i think what she said is honestly like it's beautiful and just wow i also knew as soon as you said five kids from ages 16 to seven she was catholic She almost had to be, right? Yeah, I just knew it.
1: She either had to be Italian, Catholic, or both. Yeah. So we know just a little bit more about Marietta, and I'll end on this note because I think it's not happy, but it is a, a little bit of a lighter tone to it. Remember I told you that one of the ways that they started catching on to David was that he called the family exactly a year after he had taken Susie from the tent marietta like i had mentioned had been coached you are the person that can help break this man down if there is any person that can break this man down or they didn't even know it was a man at that point whoever did this you're the person mother kind woman religious woman that can do this she, she tried exactly that when he had called that day she gave some insight into what that conversation sounded like she said quote you know i've been praying for you ever since you took her when, and then she says later in an interview, when he called, I genuinely wanted to reach him. I don't think he was expecting that. And I really meant it with all my heart. And she thinks, and investigators do too, and journalists from other stories, think this is part of what really broke him down and later led to his confession, you know, not just faced with the evidence, but faced with the guilt and the kindness of a mother that had been so wrongfully scorned, but was willing to, to give compassion in return. She said, quote, We were totally convinced that the only thing that would crack him would be a strong female confronting him with the crime that he had committed. She was right, ultimately. This is quoting directly from an ABC News article. Having stared him in the eyes, Marietta forgave her daughter's murderer. She also reached out to Meyerhofer's mother. In the years since, each has accompanied the other to their child's grave. Marietta says, quote, together we were able to grieve as mothers who lost their children. I hope that it would help her to know that I had forgiven him. End quote. She's an advocate to this day for nonviolence. And she says that is just as important on the streets as it is in the home, as it is in jails and death chambers, which I just think is, I don't know that it's something that I align to, but I really appreciate about Marietta that she was able to turn this into something that was really about advocacy and saying that there is another way to pursue justice. I don't have to agree with it to feel like that's a really noble cause and Uh that I love that she turned something so painful in her life and to her whole family and that whole community. When something like that happens to a community of only 900, you are affecting everyone. We've talked about that in the Hollinsburg murders and some of these other cases. Those people did not feel safe for years, maybe ever again, knowing that this happened. And to turn something like that that is so ugly into something that is really about righteousness and justice and doing good and putting good into the world. I just, hats off to you, Marietta. She
0: found a way to fill a void Yeah, that was now part of her life. Would hope that if faced in the same situation that I could say, this is what my loved one would do. I can live in love or I can be angry and hateful, especially because... He ended his life. Now you have no one to be angry at. If you don't find that closure, right, it's going to eat you alive. And so I think what she says is absolutely beautiful. While I absolutely loathe child murders, and you know a campsite, <laughs> dear God, that sounds I ain't like we're going camping again. You know, like, Turn every light in this house on. Yep. <laughs> but like those are all things I don't like. It's stories in the dark to tell yourself, but all of these. Times that I hear about these situations, here are these parents or siblings who are stepping into the light and being like, This moment is not going to find, define me. What is going to define me is my reaction to it and what I do with it. So, like Marietta could have been, you know, a stay at home mom of five, and now she is a champion for nonviolence, for people we saw with Jacob Wetterling's family, things like that. And then also for the police to come together and say, look, there needs to be ways for us to track this. That's
1: very pivotal. Like That's how you move forward. You can't change it. It's how we get better and we prevent this from happening again to someone else's child. I'll leave us with one more quote from Marietta because I think it just wraps this up just beautifully. And this is from that same ABC News article that again, we'll, we'll link in our show notes here. She says, quote, I would not honor the goodness and sweetness and beauty of my little girl's life by killing someone in her name. She's worthy of a more honorable memorial than a cold-blooded state-sanctioned killing of a defenseless person, however deserving of death that person may be. End quote.
0: She's right. And I like that she makes this about Susie. Like, not that quote just gets me. She's like, no. She was like, Susie deserved more. That's who I'm going to put this in memory. This is how I'm going to live my life. Like, the person who took her, we can forget his name tomorrow. You know, we're going to remember Susie. Susie. Yeah.
1: I love that. I do too.
0: Michael, I know that was a really hard story for you to tell. And I just want to say, I sat here and was mesmerized by your storytelling. Loved it. Thank you.
1: We hope that you all enjoyed it too. We'll again thank our listener, Laura H. And hopefully that is proof positive to all of you that if you send us ideas for stories, we love getting to tell them. Just knowing that this is something that set forward like criminal profiling for all of us, like just so huge. But until then, and until next time, bye bitches. Bye hey you made it to the end of the podcast thanks so much for hanging out with us and i know that we've given a lot of our unsolicited feedback but at the end of the day it's also important that we remember to stay kind stay curious but of course stay nosy
0: bitches bitches.